Thanks for your goodness, and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just ask that you would um, just settle our hearts now, that we would just hear from you uh, the words that you have uh, penned for us, you've preserved for us, despite tremendous opposition. And Lord, we just have it um, to read in our laps. Just what a privilege. What an amazing privilege. You're so good to us, Lord. Help us today, Lord, to know your goodness. If we don't know the rules or if we don't know the formula, help us to know your goodness. And uh, have your way with us, Lord, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. So, um, you know, we typically go through Old, uh, New Testament and then Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. Um, if you're new, we go... Um, teach the Bible verse by verse, cover to cover. And so we just finished Second Timothy. Honestly, uh, I was kind of back and forth. Do we go to Titus? Because it's the third of the pastoral epistles, and it kind of brings together a package of pastoral epistles. Or do we go back to the next Old Testament book, which would be Daniel? And I decided that we'll do uh, Titus, and uh, we'll say we did First and Second Timothy and Titus as the pastoral epistles as a unit. But as I say that, um, next week, obviously Easter, um, we'll pause from uh, Titus and give uh, a message uh, related to Easter um, that some of you have heard, you know, you know, Easter story, it's interesting. I, 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 uh, I've wrestled with this over the years. You know, sometimes on Easter, you want to say something new and different and, and something that's, you know, maybe insightful or maybe something that's, um, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, God's mercies are new every, every day, every morning, right? God's word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, um, honestly, and I was, I was uh, as most of you know, we were in Israel a couple weeks ago. I was just really touched um, with one of the teachings out of John 21. And uh, some of you guys know, it's one of my favorite Bible stories. And uh, so we're gonna talk about that next week and I'll make it through, don't worry. Um, but uh, so that's next week and then um, we'll finish Titus and then go back to Daniel. Titus, the person, was a companion of Paul uh, traveled with him, ministered with him. He was a Gentile believer. You recall, again, if, you, if we put ourselves in a, in a historical timeline of the first century, there's lots of discord between Jew and Gentile. And uh, Titus was a Gentile believer. We know that from Galatians chapter 2. He assisted Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He went to the Jerusalem council with Paul. Uh, I believe that was around Acts chapter maybe 15. Um, you recall some of the Jewish Christians said, you know, the, 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 those that had been Jewish that have now accepted Jesus, they were telling everybody, hey, this is awesome. All you got to do is accept Jesus by grace for the forgiveness of your sins and be circumcised and adhere to the Old Testament law with Jesus alongside of that and you're going to be saved, Right. And, the, and that's, unfortunately, largely, uh, you know, we have our own version of that oftentimes. We think that we need Jesus plus something. Jesus plus get your life right. Jesus plus uh, clean everything up. Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. And really, the reality is we're saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If I ever start to think that I am saved because of anything I have done, or because of any insight that I have, or because of any wisdom that I've had, then I am on very shaky ground. And it's by grace we've been saved, not, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So anyway, so the Jewish Christians were kind of going that way, and they had a big meeting there in Jerusalem, and they kind of settled the issue. Thankfully, they established that uh, for us historically that said, no, the Gentile believers don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so... Uh, Titus was no doubt relieved by that, and um, Titus later would carry the letter of 2 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. Uh, Titus also collected money 
from the Corinthians to take back to the, to the believers in Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem church. And so Titus, think of this like, like this. Titus is a companion of Paul. Paul entrusts Titus to carry what Paul would know to be the Word of God. So is Titus a pretty faithful, reliable guy? Yeah. And Titus is also being entrusted to carry money from the Corinthians and some of the other churches back to uh, Jerusalem. Does it require a trustworthy guy to carry church's money? Yeah, for sure. And so, uh, so we get a little bit of an insight into, into the character of Titus. Uh, he'd be trustworthy. He'd be a faithful guy. And so most historians, some of, this we have, some of this has to be put together a little bit by history, but most historians say, you know, the end of Acts, the end of the book of Acts ends, it feels like uh, a cliffhanger, uh, like Paul's in prison in Rome, he's there for two years, it says, and then we don't really, that's just where the, the Lord chose to end that story. But church history would tell us that Paul was later released uh, from Roman prison around 62 uh, A.D., and then uh, did some more traveling around. One of the places that he most likely went was to the island of Crete, which is an island off of the coast of Greece, and he went there with Titus. We read, we'll read uh, here in a minute, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I left you in Crete. Well, there's no other reference in the book of Acts of Paul being in Crete. So if I say, I left you in Milton, that means I've been to Milton. We were there together. You stayed, I left. Everybody follow the math on that? Two minus one, and there's one guy left in Milton. We should go back to basketball. <laughs> so uh, he says, I left you in Crete. So most people say after Paul's imprisonment, he probably went to Crete with Titus, left Titus there. Uh, it would appear that several churches were established on the island of Crete, and, um, and so probably this book was written as an encouragement to Titus Sort of, again, how to do ministry, sort of a pastoral epistle like First and Second Timothy. And most people would say this was written um, uh, around 63 A.D. Uh, between the writing of First and Second Timothy. And then, as we've said before, Paul is then rearrested after uh, 64 A.D. Uh, because uh, Rome burned and Nero was persecuting Christians after that. And Paul is re-imprisoned and, and ultimately executed. So that's the setting with Titus. Uh, again, uh, Titus is on the island of Crete, uh, overseeing some churches. He needs some instruction for that. Paul's given it to him, and, um, and here we go. So as we go into chapter 1, <coughs> it's a relatively short chapter. Um, if you would, uh, I like Warren Wearsby kind of breaks this down. He says uh, uh, there's basically three sections we're going to read about. Number one, Paul's commitment to preach the word. You got to like that, right? Number two, Paul's instruction for church leaders, uh, very similar to what we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then finally, uh, Paul's instructions regarding false teachers. And there were false teachers then, there are false teachers today. Uh, the public narrative is pretty loud, and so we need some help with that. So there's a lot of um, good uh, instruction here. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So let's we'll pause there for a second. Paul is both a bondservant and an apostle here he identifies himself. Some, some books he identifies himself as Paul the bondservant, some as Paul the apostle. In this case, he's identifying as both. It's kind of interesting. The bondservant was, um, uh, the translation literally means the under rower. And so, you know, there was uh, the lowest of the low of slaves in those days were the ones that would uh, be at the bottom of the boat, like the lower layer of the, of the boat, if you will, rowing the boat. And, um, and it, was a, it was a very lowly position. Interestingly, Paul, the board bondservant, goes on to mean that he's that by choice right? Most of us would not choose to be a servant of anyone. And I've heard it said, you know you're a servant of Christ when you don't mind being treated like a servant. Truth is, most of us don't like being treated like servants. And, um, and yet, 
as Paul said last week in, in 2 Timothy, he's pouring himself out as a drink offering, right? Meaning, whatever you want, Lord, I'm yours. And the reason we don't like being treated, by a, treated as a servant is that we think in terms of being treated as a servant by other human beings. But if we're treated as a servant by Jesus Christ, we choose to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ, we've got a great master. And we've always, can I tell you this, if you don't hear anything else, please get this. We always have to go back to the character of God. I was talking to somebody earlier about in the context of, of this Jesus Revolution movie and, and you know, uh, what church is like and what religion is like and what Christianity is like. And the reality is there's all that stuff, right? There's denominations, there's how we do things, there's all that. And sometimes that's what we see. But what we really need to see is the character of God. You know, when we understand the character of God and we understand that God does everything based on love, then it makes, a, it makes so much other stuff just wash away. It makes all the weirdness of church wash away. It makes, you know, somebody says, I was hurt by church. I was scarred by church. I was shunned by church. I was whatever by church. They're talking about religion, right? And that's not the character of God. And so we always have to go back to the character of God. If I really understand the character of God, then I am thrilled to be his bondservant. I am thrilled. I count it a privilege to be his bondservant. So Paul's a bondservant. He's also an apostle. An apostle means one who is sent, right? It's, it means I'm being sent by someone else. I'm being sent by God. Uh, Paul identifies himself as that. And so we see the two sides of this. On one hand, I need to choose to be a drink offering. I need to choose to be surrendered to the will of a loving God. But I also... Um, need to uh, recognize that I'm being at his disposal. So the choice I make is a willful, active choice, but then I have this passive, like, uh, God, work on my life. God, do in my life whatever you want to do. God, you, do, you work out this situation. You work out these circumstances. You work out this relationship or these relationships or any of the situation or whatever it is, because we all have situations. And he says, the bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Now, this is not the faith in God's elect, the faith of God's elect. Uh, so we don't have faith in other... God's elect is, um, uh, is a reference to other believers, okay? Election uh, is, a, is a little bit of a buzzword, so we don't want to neglect it necessarily. But elect just means I've been chosen by God. And it was, as we've said before, I'm not going to necessarily break it down here, um, but we are chosen by God to be saved if we're believers, okay? And that's divinely, that was divinely orchestrated from before the, the beginning of time. We also uh, choose to respond to the love of God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, to trust in, to rely upon to adhere to, to uh, faith in God through Jesus Christ, then that person should not perish but have everlasting life. Did we choose to follow Jesus or did he divinely elect us? Well, both are biblically true, honestly, and we've broken that down many times. Uh, I won't do that for the sake of redundancy. Um, <clears throat> if you want to look further into that, and there's a whole spectrum of it we've talked about a million times, uh, I refer you back to uh, any one of 5,000 previous teachings that talk about that, which you're all thinking right now. But the faith of God's elect, it's the according to faith is what God, is what entered Paul into this relationship with God. His, the faith in God is what entered into this relationship that allows Paul to be a bondservant and an apostle. 
and the acknowledgement of the truth. Can I point that out to you? And the acknowledgement of the truth. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week because there's a, there's a narrative going on. There's a lot of narratives going on. The truth is there have always been a lot of narratives going on, right? Why did they crucify Jesus? Because, they, I, mean, I mean, again, it was divinely orchestrated from before the foundation of time, right? But on a, on a kind of on a uh, social level, if you will, is it weird that the same people that said, you know, um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, are the ones that are less than a week later saying crucify him? Is that weird? How does that happen? That happens largely uh, because of a social narrative, right? The chief priests are stirring up the crowd, right? What do, what do we know about Pilate? It says Pilate knew that they were doing this out of envy. There's a social narrative being directed, right, to the people. Does that happen today? You bet it happens today. So what do we need today? What's the, what's the uh, litmus test that helps us sort out the social narrative? Truth. Truth. You know, I said last week, you know, I grew up in an era where you trust your doctor, you trust your teacher, right? You trust your Walter Cronkite. I mean, seriously, did Walter Cronkite ever lie to us? Ever? No. We need Walter Cronkite back, right? I mean, we grew up in that era, right? Where, well, you just... You just, if your school teacher said it, it must be truth. If your doctor said it, it must be truth. If Walter Cronkite said it, it must be truth. And frankly, all three of those and, and then some are undermined today. We need truth. What can we take to the bank as the only absolute, unequivocal, unshakable, absolute truth no ifs, ands, or buts. What is it? The Scripture. The Word of God. The Word of God. Now, this is truth. Is it any less truth if I don't believe it or acknowledge it? It doesn't change. That's the essence of truth. Truth is truth. And again, I always go back to my, in my mind, Pontius Pilate looked Jesus in the eye and said, what is truth? Can you imagine what such prophetic line from a guy like him? What is truth? The Word of God is truth. We choose to acknowledge it as such. But if we don't, it's no less truth. So what do we do? Paul is an Paul, and we follow, you know, we, we, want, we want to look to Paul. Uh, he's a bondservant of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's being used by God at the discretion of God, according to a faith relationship and the acknowledgement of truth. And how do we, what's one of the things that we see with truth? Which accords with godliness. The more we acknowledge and embrace the truth of Scripture, the more we walk in godliness. Simple fact. Simple fact. That's why I, I always, to me, the order is important, right? Know the character of God. Acknowledge the truth of the Scripture. And as you do that, guess what? You're going to walk in godliness. Too often as Christians, we want, to, we want to clean up our life or clean up the life of the person that we're trying to fix and then talk about uh, the faith and then maybe get around to talking about the God of the faith. Does that make sense? The order's important. If I know, if I know the love of God, and I want to have a relationship with him. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life and through Jesus Christ my Lord. I can accept the, the, the free gift of eternal life. I can also accept everything else that Jesus said, therefore. And he says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I have not only a hope of eternal life, but I have an expectation of abundant life here on earth. Then I've got that relationship. Guess what? I'm going to respond. I'm going to live a life in response to that. I'm going to walk in godliness, right? So the order is important. We don't have to worry about, uh, you know, a bunch of religious duty, and then that's like some way we earn 
earn our way to understanding who God is. We understand who God is because of truth, the truth of the Scripture. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So God's plan since before time was for us to live eternally with him. God was not surprised when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God knew it was going to happen. God knew, and as, as we heard earlier, God, God knew it, and God uh, prophesied there, Genesis chapter 3, that uh, the seed of the woman, there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? The seed of the woman is a reference to Jesus Christ, right? And uh, Jesus was going to be bruised and Satan is going to be crushed, right? Is that how it played out? Yeah. So prophecy starts. So there's no surprise. God knew in, Je- in the Garden of Eden that all this was going to play out. God knew we have hope of this, um, uh, from the beginning of time, to live eternally with him. That's a promise. Notice also, God cannot lie. You ever think about that? There's some things that God can't do. God can't lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. There are some things God can't do. God cannot lie. God cannot act outside of his character. God cannot be unloving. Think about that. God cannot be unloving. God cannot lie. God's character is established. But, verse 3, has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And so, yes, we have the promise of eternal life, but we also have life today between now and then, right? So in due time, uh, God's word is manifested through Paul's preaching. And so um, we have the privilege of reading the scripture, of explaining the scripture, preaching sometimes the, te- the scripture, teaching, preaching, talking about the scripture. That's the way God has chosen to communicate to us. He gives us his word. He gives us people. I believe he, he uh, teaches us so that we can teach others. Simple as that. All through the truth of his word. And Paul was appointed by God to teach his word. I believe I was appointed by God to teach his word. I believe we're all appointed by God for whatever service he has for us. And we all have some kind of service as Christians that's been appointed by God. Isn't that cool? Don't we want to be useful for God? And yet... um, you know, as we've said so many times, man sometimes categorizes that usefulness. But the body of Christ, described in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, talks about in great detail, you know, there's all these different parts. And even the parts that seem like they're no big deal, those are the ones that really matter. And the truth is, they all really matter, right? So Paul said he was appointed a teacher or preacher. I believe I was appointed as a guy to stand here and talk about the Word of God. I believe we're all appointed to do different things. And it's beautiful that only God can orchestrate all of that. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Titus is a true son in the faith, just like uh, Timothy was a son in the faith, Paul described. And, you know, we should all hopefully have sons and daughters in the faith as we uh, live this life according to uh, faith in God, according with the truth of the scripture, according to God's purposes, according to the hope of eternal life and the manifestation of, of abundant life uh, in, our, in our time now on, on earth. We should have sons and daughters in the faith. Simple as that. Titus is a son of Paul in the faith. And then grace, mercy, and peace. Paul opens all of his letters with grace and peace. In the pastoral epistles, he adds mercy. So most of Paul's letters, he says grace and peace. In the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, he says grace, mercy, and peace. Some have said it's because pastors need extra mercy. Who knows? Maybe. But it's, it's good. I appreciate mercy. But grace and peace particularly, 
And we've said this before, we'll say it again. They go hand in hand. And they always go in order. Catch this. You'll never see peace and grace. Because you don't have peace until you have grace. Grace and peace. I think it's no accident. I don't think there's any grammatical accents. I don't think it's a, uh, it just came off the tongue better. Right? I think it's no accident. Grace always precedes peace. You can't have peace without the grace of God. And the grace of God will bring peace. Do we need peace today? Does the world need peace? Does our, do our hearts individually need peace? Yes. You know where you find it? Peace school? You get a PhD in peace? No. Grace. The grace of God. Simple as that. Isn't that sweet? We don't have to be super anything to receive the grace of God. I love that. Just chew on that one for a minute. Chew on that one for a minute. How much does the world establish like this person can have this privilege in life because he's rich or smart or good looking or whatever? And this one, this person can have sort of an okay life. Does the world do that? Does the church do that? Does God do that? No. Not at all. See this? What are we learning? We're learning the Word of God. But what I want us to learn today, especially, is the character of God as reflected in His Word. I believe it's super powerful. Super powerful. So, grace always precedes peace. And in this case, mercy is added in, which is a bonus. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And so, now Paul goes from you know, his preaching the Word and his, his sort of role in God's service now to talk about uh, leadership in the church, and he's going to establish some leadership. And <clears throat> Titus is now, it would appear, overseeing churches, quote, in every city. So it, it appears to be a plurality of churches a little bit. And, um, and as we read this... Uh, Many of you were here when we went through 1 Timothy chapter 3. A lot of these uh, principles are the same. We'll go through them again, um, just for, because the Bible goes through them again. But there needs to be some church government and oversight. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Y'all came, in, y'all came in this morning, we turned the lights on, and guess what happened? We flipped the light switch, guess what happened? Lights came on. That's because there's some sort of structure. We pay the light bills. Right? Stop worrying about that. Light bills are covered. Right? Wrote a rent check today. It's first of the month. Wrote a rent check today. Barring some disaster, we're here for another 30 days. All right? Barring some disaster. Maybe it wouldn't be a disaster. Maybe it'd be rapture of the church. Right? If we're raptured the next 30 days, we will not pay May's rent. We can save the money. If you're still here on May 1st, pay the rent. You got bigger fish to fry. So, I went through a whole thing at the beginning when we, when we, and I'd refer you back to there about for, at First Timothy chapter three about church government and sort of how we do church government. We don't have the corner on the market uh, on church government. Um, really, there's no like you know we as Americans we like our constitution because it's our it's our blueprint for church government. The church the, the scripture doesn't really give us necessarily an exact blueprint for church government. There's some models of church government. There's some principles and there's some of the things like that. So we have to sort of um, kind of put together as biblically as we can. Uh, my personal bent is uh, usually we have too much church government that stifles the work of God. Committees, uh, approvals, um, titles, 
I'm not real big on titles, uh, positions, striving for titles and positions and money management. And does it start to feel hot in here? Right? We don't like that. Right? And, I don't, and I'm not sure that God wants that. It's, there's a certain bit of that, right? There's got to be a guy that stands here. You were hoping that, well, I don't, I'm not going to go there. You were hoping there'd be somebody standing here this morning, right? Like you wouldn't have to, right? And, um, you know, so there's, there's some order of things a little bit. And so one of the things is that we just see these principles established that, that Paul lays out. And so uh, these are similar to what we saw in, in 1 Timothy. He said, I left you in Crete that you should set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, um, the Greek word bishop is the word um, episkopos. There's a word elder that's uh, uh, presbyteros. There's a word pastor. And um, uh, we talked about this, uh, again, not to be redundant, but... um, Vine's Concordance talks about that these are basically the same person. Um, as a lot of people would interpret it, and, and I being one of those. Same person that are, that's basically used interchangeably. The word bishop uh, describes the role of the overseer. The word elder describes uh, the godly maturity of the person. And the word pastor just means shepherd. So it describes his job. Okay, so basically he's talking about this. If you want to break it down further, uh, in verse 5, if you'll see, he uses the word elders. Uh, and then in the, word, in, in the same context, in verse 7, he uses the word bishop. So even Paul, in this little paragraph, he seems to use these two a little bit interchangeably. And again, I wouldn't argue with anybody necessarily over that, but um, it's how, how we've chosen to read it. So... If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And so uh, we see here, uh, we're going we're gonna to see some characters of this person. person needs to be blameless. Does that mean he's perfect? Am I perfect? No, I told you we argued on the way over here, right, about basketball. Um, blameless, the idea here in, in the... the the Greek of it is an accusation won't stick, okay? And I've heard it. The way I say it is, you know, if you read on the, in the front page of the paper that, you know, Scott Murphy robbed a bank and, you know, did something ridiculous, you'd say, huh, must be another Scott Murphy in town, right? We would hope you would say something like that. <laughs> right? And so, you know, an accusation of moral character won't stick. Now, why is that important? Because guess what? Do pastors get accused of stuff? Yeah. Pastors ever get falsely accused of stuff? Yeah, I've been falsely accused of stuff. It's no fun. And at the end of the day, God has to be my defense. And uh, God knows better than I do how to defend myself. And so the idea is uh, uh, this person needs to be uh, a person that an accusation won't stick. Um, He needs to be the husband of one wife. Now, does that mean some denominations, and again, I wouldn't argue with them, means that that means uh, a person that's been divorced could never be a pastor or an elder of a church. Personally, I believe that the Greek here means he's a one-woman kind of a person, okay? And this is relevant. This is relevant. I said this before, I'll say it again. My wife needs to know that she does not have to compete with anyone for my attention. Does that make sense? Do I need to get more intense about that? My wife needs to know that she's not competing with anyone for my attention. And, as, and, and frankly, I want to say it as graciously as I can. In a room this size, it probably needs to be said. That includes virtual. My wife needs to know that I don't have a, a, a that she doesn't compete with anybody virtually. All right? And I know that's a bit dicey, but it's, it's the truth of the Scripture. And so... Where the scripture says it, 
uh, we say it. So the husband and one wife, having faithful children and not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And so does that mean the kids are perfect? No, one person said no, right? Let's have a, sh- let's have a vote. Are the kids perfect? No, right? But there needs to be some sort of order, right? There needs to be some sort of order. The man needs to not be negligent of his home. And again, let me just say this, uh, more than one time over the course of history has it happened where a person can lead a, is, is leading a church but is negligent at home? Is that possible? Now you think about this for a second. Guys, check me on this. You go to work, especially let's say guys that are in some kind of leadership capacity at work. All right? You go to work, people spend all day saying you're awesome. Right? You guys, am I the only one? <laughs> you go to work all day, they say, wow, you're awesome. You come home, your wife's. You know, maybe tired or maybe frustrated about something. Maybe you got kids at home and they're not lining up telling you you're awesome as much as everybody at work did, right? Does that happen? And so what's the, what's the easy, what's the, uh, um, how do I say this? What's the wrong default button to push? Oh, Okay. I'll go back to work for a little longer where they tell me I'm awesome because you don't tell me I'm awesome. Can I tell you this? This is step one of way too many marriage challenges. It's step one of way too many uh, husbands that don't uh, address their family, that don't shepherd their family, that don't love their wives like Christ loved the church because everybody at work tells me I'm awesome. I used to, you know, years ago. I've gotten a little smarter over the years, but years ago, uh, one time, Tracy, you know, I come home from work. Tracy wants to process a little bit the day. And uh, men, what do we do? Starts with an F, rhymes with Nick's. Or fixer, right? She rattles off her frustrations of the day. I give my advice in two seconds. What does she say? Ladies, what does she say? I don't want you to fix me. I just want you to listen, right? I say, honey, I'm a doctor. I've been giving good advice all day long to people that come and seek it, right? It's, it's what I do. How'd that work? Anybody, ladies, how'd that work for me? It was a long time ago. Long time ago, right? But the reality is, husbands need to be attentive. Husband and one wife, faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless. Again, that word blameless is now twice, so it must be important. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And so what do we see here? We've got another list, blameless. He's a steward of God. Again, the steward was a caregiver of the rich man's stuff, right? And I am a steward of God. My life has been given to me by God. But who owns my life if I'm poured out as a drink offering? Who owns my life? God owns my life. I'm a steward of this life. I make decisions that affect God's, the life that God has given me to take care of for these few decades, right? And so I'm a steward of God's life. I need to not be self-willed. I need to love God and love others. I need to not be quick-tempered. Again, if I'm, uh, Galatians tells me to walk in the Spirit and I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? If I'm walking in the Spirit, what are the fruits of the Spirit, right? How do you identify an orange tree? The shape of the leaves? No, you identify an orange tree by its fruit, right? What's the fruit of the Spirit? If I'm walking in the Spirit, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those, those words all describe somebody who's uh, probably not quick-tempered. He's pretty chilled. He's got self-control, right? Not quick-tempered. Not given to wine. Again, maybe some controversy in this. Uh, in First Timothy, Paul identifies to deacons to not be given to much wine. And he identifies to elders, to bishops, to not be given to wine. I personally take that for me. Uh, I don't need that to be a part of my life. Not violent, right? We need to be careful to have self-control. And not greedy for money. Greedy for money is a difficult one. Because if we're greedy for money, by definition, we will never have enough. And yet, we, if we're greedy for money, by definition, we'll never have enough. And by definition, we'll believe the lie that says, you know, a little bit more will be just about what I need. Right? You ever, I mean, I won't ask for a show of hands. But we've probably all wrestled with that at some point. Where, you know, if I just had, like, this much more, man, so many problems would just go away. But if we see God as our provider, then we learn to be content. Now that's, everybody's situation is different, but the elder is not to be greedy for money. But hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, so again, here's the positive. So the, there's a list of negatives. Here's positives. Hospitable. If a person's others focused, he needs to be hospitable. He needs to have a desire to bless others. A lover of good. Now this may seem self-explanatory, but do we love the good in life? Do we love good? Do we hate evil? Not hating evil people, but hate the evil of the world? Not so much that we're mad at it, but we need to just love good. Love what is good. Sober-minded. Sober-minded. Can I just pause this for a second? I think an, a leader in the church, and this is probably a good principle for us as Christians, needs to understand how to be sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? It means I'm not always cracking up all the time. Now, am I a funny guy? How, how fun? On a scale from 1 to 10. Who was it? There was some kid recently. There's some kid. I, was, oh, I have to think about it now. Some kid recently. I love messing with little kids, if you've noticed. And I was messing with some little kid I just met. It was some conference or something. And uh, I'm messing with some little kid, and she's about five or six years old. Maybe it was here. I forget anyway. I said, do you think I'm funny? She kind of stared at me. I said, like, on a scale from 1 to 10, how funny do you think I am? Without skipping a beat, she said, 4. <laughs> All right. I've done worse. It's okay to be funny. It's okay to be funny. But I hope you, I, I want, I'll tell you what I want to be. I want to be a guy that when I'm serious, you know I'm serious. Because if I'm talking about the love of God, you need to not wonder if I'm joking or not, right? If I'm talking about the truth of the Scripture, you need to not be wondering what, if I'm joking or not. Some of you heard me say before, my favorite story on this, in the Old Testament, right? Fire and brimstone are coming to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The angels, of, the angels come and they tell Lot, get your family and get out of here because destruction is coming. And it says that Lot tells his family, dude, the angel said we've got to get out of here because destruction is coming. He had two son-in-laws that thought he was joking. You know what they did? They died. Because they thought he was joking. Is that sad or what? That's sad. So be funny, but when you're serious, make it clear. Make it clear. And don't be so goofy that nobody knows if you're capable of being serious. Is that fair? So, the elder, the bishop, the pastor, the leader is sober-minded. 
He's just. He treats people fairly. He's holy. You know, we don't talk about holiness a lot, right? But again, we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about holiness as man defines it. We're talking about if we really understand the love of God and if we respond with surrendering our lives to a loving God because we appreciate and acknowledge how loving He is, then we're going to live holy. It's just a natural outflow. And so He's holy. He's self-controlled. He can keep His cool under pressure. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So I think of this as a working knowledge of the scripture, right? Holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So here's the deal. We need to know the scripture well enough to use it, right? The scripture is not given to us just like an encyclopedia book so that we can know stuff, so that we can know facts about Jesus or facts about Old Testament history or facts even about New Testament history or anything like that. That's not why we have the Word. We have the Word of God to have a relationship with us, to guide us. The psalm says, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's what guides us and leads us. And the Word is given to us that way. We need to use it as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path in the situations that we encounter in our daily lives. So, a church leader needs to hold fast the faithful Word and use it for life situations. Verse 10, now he goes into this third section. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now, there were two main types of false teachers in, in this day that, that Titus would have had to deal with. One was what we referenced a little bit earlier was the Judaizers, it's called. That they, were, they were sort of the Jewish Christians who thought that we need to make everybody a little bit Jewish, right? We need to... Um, uh, you know, follow Jesus and get circumcised. We need to follow Jesus and adhere to the Sabbath. And so that was kind of one sect of, of, uh, of false teaching. And there was another one that was sort of permissive grace. We'll talk about this a little bit uh, when we get into chapter 2. But in chapter 2, verse 11, he starts out, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So there were those that would say in those days, largely, you know, sort of the Gentile camp, if you will, that, hey, we're saved by grace? That's awesome. You know what that means? I can do whatever I want. Still go to heaven. Isn't that awesome? Right? Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6. Hey, so since there's grace, so should we just keep on sinning so there'll be more grace? No. And so those are the two kinds of sort of false teaching in that day. You catch this today? Right? Do we have legalism today? Yeah. Do we have a little too much permissiveness today? Yeah. Do we even have that in the church a little bit? Yeah. Like you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this if you're going to be a good Christian, right? And then we got others that are like, hey, man. Don't judge me. <laughs> Jesus hung out with sinners, man. Right? Right? Have you heard all this? Right? Hey, man, Jesus, you know, was, was a radical dude. He just lets me do what I want. Saves me, man. Right? We watched that hippie movie too many times. So we need to not err on either side. Paul here, he's addressing the, the legalistic side. He's talking about there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, referencing the Jewish people. So let's break this down a little bit. They're insubordinate. There are many people that are insubordinate. Literally, the word means will not submit. Will not submit to authority. How are you with authority? Raise your hand if, you're under, if you and your personal life are under some kind of authority structure. 
maybe at home or at work or at the government or the last time you drove a, a, a last time you paid taxes or drove down the road, right? We're all under some sort of authority structure. How are we with that authority structure, right? Do we kick and scream about it or do we roll with it? Now, to be fair, some authorities are, are more gracious than others, right? Some of us have nasty bosses at work, right? I'm not saying I do, but some, some people have nasty bosses at work, right? Some people have gracious bosses at work. And so we all have different situations, but there are some, he says, that are insubordinate. It means I will not cave to authority. We need to not be those people. And we need to guard ourselves and our, those we love from those people, right? They're idle talkers. Can I tell you this? An insubordinate person, by definition, likes to talk. Likes to talk. They talk too much. They reveal too much about themselves if you listen close enough, right? And they're deceivers. Sometimes they're even deceived themselves. So, and they're especially the circumcision. In those days, the Jews were doing this. Can I tell you something? Be careful about hanging around the water cooler, talking about the boss. Does that make sense? Be careful about hanging around with a bunch of people that are all ripping on whatever. You know, mom and dad. <laughs> Don't rip on mom and dad. Mom and dad are trying. If they're trying, they should be trying, right? Don't be insubordinate. Paul says their mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So here's, here we see what they do. They subvert, they subvert whole households. You know, an insubordinate person is usually trying to persuade others. They like to be, they, they don't want to do it alone. An insubordinate person, by the way, never wants to be insubordinate alone, right? They want to rally an army of supporters. You can check this. If you've ever encountered one, they want to rally an army of supporters. Be careful. They feel validated by, by popularity. They subvert whole households. They teach things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, dishonest gain can refer to money, often does. Sometimes there's some other motive. But if you can follow the motive, you can usually sort it out. Now, Paul's just given us this stuff for discernment, right? Do we have to walk in discernment? Yeah, we do. Do we have to have a working knowledge of the Scripture to help us navigate the situations of life? Yes, we do. And so one of these things is uh, they do this for the sake of dishonest gain. Beware of, the gain. beware of the motive behind something. Beware of the motive behind something. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Their testimony is true. So Paul here is quoting a, um, um, a philosopher of the day, Epimenides, um, that basically, you know, people on the island of Crete, they had a reputation of being um, kind of slackers, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, you know, to some extent, there's probably some reason for that. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And so, um, you know, we need to be careful to direct people back to the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. So to the pure, all things are pure. That's why it's important to teach the Word of God, right? The Word of God washes us. The Word, word of God washes us from, washes us, cleanses us from the social narrative, cleanses us from the junk in our own lives, cleanses us from false teaching. To the pure, all things are pure. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they, are, they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now here's an interesting thing. False teachers will say people that are insubordinate 
people that uh, are just, they can't handle authority and they specifically can't handle maybe the authority of God and maybe they can't handle, maybe it's a, it could be any of a number of situations, but we'll just generally call them insubordinate. Okay. They want to drag other people down with them. And they want to uh, not do anything pure. They want to drag everybody down into their, own, into their own fables, their own ideas, their own opinions. And then at the end here, he says this. This is interesting. And they profess to know God, but by works they deny Him. Not everyone who professes to know God knows God. Do you realize that? Again, if we have a working knowledge of the Scripture, we know that Matthew chapter 7 tells us this. Jesus himself said, you know, not everybody that calls me Lord, Lord is going to go to heaven. He said, there's going to be some people on that day that say, hey, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Right? Now, again, we're not saved by works. Right? So if we've received Jesus, if we acknowledge that we're sinners, we've asked Him to come into our lives, forgive us of our sin, we don't need to worry about that being us. Okay? But the reality is, there will be some people, Jesus said on that day, that say, hey, I'm, I'm one of you. And He'll say, I never knew you. Right? So for us, in this context in Titus, we want to be protected from that. Jesus said, in the same chapter, beware of false prophets. So, first of all, beware of false prophets. Are there false prophets today? Yeah. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Do they look kind of warm and fuzzy when they come to you? But inwardly, they're ravenous, what? Wolves. And catch this. You will know them. How does he say you'll know them? Because they'll be wearing like a red suit with a pitchfork no you'll know them by their fruits he says he says beware of false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing all nice but inwardly they're ravenous wolves you know them by their fruits all right and as we have working knowledge of the scripture fruit does that ring a bell does that ring a bell we go to galatians chapter 5 now the works The flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see somebody coming to you, and their life looks like what I just described, and they're going to tell you about some great new doctrine? or some great new uh, political cause, or some great new thing that you ought to be a part of, walk away. But the fruit of the Spirit, we read before, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there's no law. Right? So when somebody comes to us with those things, we can say, oh, okay, to the pure, all things are pure. Right? And so... Why do I go through that? Because God, through His Word, gives us these simple tools to have discernment. Because there are people, catch this, there are people in this day and age who will try to deceive us. And we need to be discerning. And how do we discern truth from fable? By the Word of God. Right? So how do we use the Word of God? By knowing the Word of God. And so, all that say, God wants order in the church. God wants order throughout the body of Christ. God wanted Titus to set things in order. The word set there means like to fix a broken bone. Like there were things broken on the island of Crete. Paul wanted Titus to set things in order. Right? And so, does God want order in the church? Yeah. Not too much, not too little, right? Why? So we can all grow in the, in the maturity, 
grow in the truth of the word, have discernment to navigate the situations of life, and he gives us these simple tools for discernment. Fair enough? He loves to equip his children so we can serve him. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks that you uh, give us your word to guide us and lead us, to help us discern truth from fable. Lord, help us to be surrendered to you. Help us to be so free to be a drink offering just poured out for you. And yet help us, Lord, to be discerning uh, with others. Help us to um, not be insubordinate. Help us to not fall for uh, the lies of the insubordinate but help us to just seek to serve you according to the truth of your word. We thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that you give it to us. Thank you that you give us your spirit who guides us into all truth. Thank you for your love, which motivates everything you do. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.